Try that again. Good morning. Good morning. All right. You said good morning. Fine. I just didn't do it right. Um, so if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 11. I remember we were going through uh, the book of Jonah. I said we we're going to do the whole book in one week, and everybody's going, yeah, sure. Well, hey, let's find out if we can get through 53 verses today. It's going to be good. So today is Palm Sunday, and you all know that. You saw the palm branches outside, plus you look at your calendar. You've been doing that. You kind of know how this stuff works. But this is an amazing day. And we have a purple sash on the cross because this is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem and everybody is, is shouting Hosanna to the king. They recognize Jesus. They are proclaiming who he is. It's probably his most popular day. No, this was his most popular day. And it was amazing. And by Friday, the crowds are going to be cheering, crucify him. And Jesus is going to be killed. This Friday, we're going to celebrate that with King's Cross. And we're going to be looking at the trials, the crucifixion, and Jesus' death. And we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then on Sunday, it's amazing because we are going to celebrate the resurrection. Have you thought about how great it is that we live after the resurrection everything in life there's pain there's difficulty there's trials like we suffer things but in a sense we are past the greatest event in history and we get to proclaim and live in light of the resurrection of Jesus like we're not waiting to look into the future like they were in the Old Testament like what we're going to see here in John chapter 11 people who kind of know but they're, they don't really know what's going on. We live on the other side of that. And it helps us live through our challenges and difficulties and trials in such a different way. One of the things that I think about often is that the church, I hope that the church is a piece of your personal evangelism ministry. So we gave you those cards. And my encouragement for you is that you pray for people. Now, we're not running ads. We're not thinking, okay, not that there would be anything wrong with that. Maybe someday we'll run ads. But um, we're not doing that to try to get as many people as possible into a room so that we can say some things that could help our church get bigger. Our goal is that we would reach you and encourage you and challenge you to know and live for Christ and that you would recognize why God put you on this earth. And that is to live for God's glory and to reach people who are lost. And so what you're supposed to be doing in your life all the time is praying for everybody that God puts around you. Praying for your neighbors. Praying for your family members. And so we're giving you a card or two. We're not saying bring your entire neighborhood, although you would be welcome to do that. But we're giving you those cards so that you will take seriously why God put you here on this earth. That you will think about people that you know. That you will pray for them. That you will go to somebody and invite them to church. And that our church service will be a piece of your personal evangelism ministry. You're praying for people. You're talking to them. They'll come to church and sit here and they'll hear some things. And then afterwards you can talk to them about it. And um, so be praying, give a card to somebody that God has put on your heart, pray for them, consider that. And uh, if you don't do it, if you're too afraid to give somebody a card, well, the first step is pray for people. 
and you can pray for people, and maybe next year you'll give a card. But you know, the truth is, um, man, this is what our life is about, and we cannot be people who shrink back from delivering things that are of eternal significance. So that, I didn't plan to say any of that, but I just saw these great people and thought, invite your friends. So, uh, but we know that. I mean, Jesus told us, um, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Well, um, as we approach that, we're going to learn some amazing things today in this passage. One of the things that I think about is that God works in the messiness of life. Man, when there's pain and there's sorrow and there's difficulty, and as you read through the Bible, Jesus talks about that, that this life was never intended to be perfect. And God has a perfect, has a perfect plan with every difficulty. You know, God is not absent in the pain of life. Uh, the pain and disappointments in life, that is often where Jesus is working most powerfully. And it is so important for us that we've read the Bible, that we've thought about all the things that God has said, because it helps us understand our life, and it helps us understand the lives of the people that God has put us around. Because there's people who struggle, their lives are devastated, and they don't see the big picture of God and his plan for their life. And it is our job to make sure we see it, so that when we're encouraging and so that when we are praying for people, we are helping them view their life and circumstances through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of God's truth. I'm thinking about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and I'll just read it, and you can think about this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You know, Jesus talks about that purpose, and in a sense, you could just take that, that verse I just read, read the whole Bible. I mean, that's the message of the whole Bible. And as we think about that, that impacts everything in our life. One of the things that we're going to see, um, we're going to look at some lessons from the life of Lazarus. And I'll tell you why we picked Lazarus for Palm Sunday. It's because when you read the account, 
this miracle in the life of Lazarus is, is the last thing that happens in Jesus' ministry that fuels the triumphal entry. What we find out is that the reason that people are there proclaiming Jesus and shouting Hosanna is primarily because of this miracle. People see what happens in this passage, and many people believe. And so they're there, and people who weren't there are coming because they want to see this Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, and they want to see Lazarus who was raised from the dead. So when you think about all the positive energy in the triumphal entry, this is what fuels that. Now, there wasn't just positive energy, right? There were also people who hated Jesus and wanted to kill him. And that shows itself on Friday. And did you know that this miracle fueled people's hatred and desire to kill Jesus? So Jesus, in this event, sets up the triumphal entry. And that's why I want to look at it, because it's this amazing thing that God does that helps us understand life, helps us understand ourselves, helps us understand evangelism, what God calls us to do in our ministry to people. Man, it comes from understanding this story. And there are six really important lessons that we are going to learn from this passage. And there's kind of two takeaways. I'm going to tell you the two takeaways, and then we're going to jump into reading John chapter 11. So when you think about the two takeaways, um, here's one, is that you personally need to believe. Like when you read this passage, you have to make a choice about what you're going to do with Jesus. And just like all these Jews, man, this was the right religion. Um, this, This, the equivalent of the Jewish nation would be if you went to the right church. And in that right church, And in that right religion were many people that did not know God and they hated God and that's going to show itself. And what we don't realize is even if you're in the right church, even if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you know the Lord. And so you need to make sure you've made a personal choice in your heart and in your relationship with God. The second thing is that we must proclaim God's word knowing that he can soften the hardest heart. It starts by, do you believe? And then the second thing is, do you proclaim God's word and God's truth, knowing that that is what God uses to change people? And we've been going through this in 1 Corinthians, and this is actually, like our last couple weeks, and actually next week, if you just go back and read the first chapter, the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, explain this story from a theological perspective. So, shall we start reading? All right. John chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. And here we're going to see the first lesson. Jesus loves you. (laughs) That's a a good first lesson, right? It says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, And the village of Mary and Martha and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he, he whom you love 
is ill. One of the things I love about these stories is Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loves his disciples. And you are going to see this through this whole story. But this opens, this story opens with God revealing to us that God loves Lazarus. And the sisters are just going, hey, Jesus, Lazarus, whom you love. And by the way, that word is the, it's the word for friendship. They were close. They were friends. And she just says, Jesus, somebody that you care about is sick. And guess what? God doesn't change. God's relationships with people don't change. And I'll show you in a minute that Jesus doesn't just love the people around him. He loves you. And when we read stories about Jesus' interactions with people, it teaches us about how Jesus sees us, how he feels about us, because that's the way he feels about other people. And there's tons of verses we could go to, right, that show us that God loves us. So that's what you need to know, first of all, is that Jesus loves you and he loved Lazarus. And when you think about that, the fact that he loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and then you think about what's about to happen in their life, uh, you might relate. Hey, God, if you love me, why am I suffering? If you love people, why do bad things happen? Because we are going to read a chapter that for us can be academic because it's not us. And we just read this stuff like it didn't really happen to people. But this really happened, and we're going to see people that are overwhelmed and crushed and devastated. And we think about all of that from the context that Jesus loved them and Jesus loves us. Let's look at number two, the second lesson that we're going to learn, and that is that the glory of God and Jesus' own glory is always his highest priority. The glory of God is always Jesus' priority and it should be ours. So Jesus does love us, but God saved us to worship him. He didn't um, save us so that he could worship us. That is one of the biggest problems in people's lives is they think, God, I'm going to come to you, and now it's your purpose to make everything in my life go good, to, take, to give me all my hopes and dreams. And that is your purpose in life is to worship me. No, that is not the purpose. Everything about what God is doing and everything that you and I are supposed to be doing is about worshiping him. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. And when you think about all this thing that happens, there's real heartbreak and sorrow that happens. But you know what? This is not confusing for us, right? I mean, you know that in coming to Christ, uh, that's where Jesus starts, is that God's glory is what matters, that, that we worship God, he doesn't worship us. Uh, you guys all remember Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, that's what's happening in this chapter, Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, some people say Jesus accepts everybody. No, Jesus says, you come and worship me or you're out. You cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So in a sense, if you become a Christian, you're already ready for what's about to happen, that God exists for his glory and that we are here to worship and obey him. He is not here to worship and obey us. So that's where we start. And uh, here's the great thing, and I want to just show you this passage. And this is where we see... Jesus is actually in John 17, in a few chapters, he's going to pray for you. And uh, this love that he has for his disciples and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he has for you. And the purpose of glorifying God that he has for them, he has for you. Let's read this. Jesus starts by saying, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is just saying, I've given them your word. That's this powerful thing that changes life and hearts and gives wisdom for living. And sanctify them, transform their life through your word. Now look what he's going to say in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. (laughs) You ever think about that? God sent Jesus, and Jesus is sending you. And we have people who live life, and they don't want to embarrass themselves or pressure their neighbors or have any relational, uncomfortable moments. And so they don't share the gospel with people. They just quietly go to work, and they work hard, and they maybe will in their effort to evangelize, say the word church. But they don't actually talk to people because they're more committed to personal comfort than to reaching people who are lost. And uh, Jesus just says, no, God sent me, and now I'm sending you. And he is talking to his disciples, but let's find something else out. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only. These are his 12 disciples. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That identifies every Christian. That identifies you. When Jesus prayed, he prayed this for you. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Part of what Jesus is praying for actually is unity in the church. You ever see people in church who kind of fight with each other and they have conflicts and they don't like this person and this person bugs them and this is going on? And Jesus is saying, no, one of the reasons we love and fellowship with each other is because otherwise people won't see Christ. Like, unity is significant. And this is all around God's glory and God's mission. So let's read some more. Now Jesus, this verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? 
And so the disciples are like, they hear, okay, Lazarus is sick, but that's cool. He's just sick. He'll get better. And Jesus just waits. And so for Mary and Martha, if they realize Jesus waited, no, we called you. This is urgent. Lazarus is sick. You need to come. And Jesus just waits. And his disciples are thinking, he's not really sick. He's, he's going to be okay. I mean, it's going to be fine. And then when Jesus says, hey, let's go, they're like, are you crazy? All the people down there are going to kill you. They're trying to kill you. We're running from there. We're trying to stay away from there. Why would you risk your life over Lazarus who's sick? And Jesus answered in verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the night is not with him. (laughs) So Jesus says this little thing. And people are like, wait, what? And uh, it's interesting. One of the things that Jesus has said in John chapter 10 when he's talking about himself as a good shepherd is he says, the good shepherd goes through the gate. The false shepherds are climbing over fences. And this just Jesus' way of saying, hey, we're not hiding, and we're not afraid, and we are about God's purpose. And I think wrapped up in that is the idea that God holds life in his hands. You know, uh, the Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that God looked into our unformed substance before we were born. And it says, in your book were written all the days of my life before there was even one of them. God has chosen the day of your birth and the day of your death. When a criminal runs into a room and decides he's going to rob you or shoot you, no, like no criminal holds your life in his hands. God holds your life in his hands. No traffic situation holds your life in, your hand, in its hands. God holds life in his hands. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he just says, yeah, we're going And we're not afraid because God's put a certain amount of hours in the day and God has decided when we will live. In fact, when Paul shares the gospel with people in Acts chapter 17, um, Paul just says this in verse 26, He made one man from every nation of mankind to live all on the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. You know, some of you guys are thinking about moving to Arizona. That's like hell on earth. I don't know why you would do that, but <laughs> it's hot there. Other people are talking about going to other places where you could, you could die in, a, in a, like a blizzard trying to get your mail out of your front yard. It's like, why would anyone want to move away? And we're talking about this mass exodus from California, but this is the thing I think about. You live where God has decided that you're going to live. And you live as long as God has decided that you're going to live. And somehow we go through life misunderstanding God's purpose and his power. And we think, oh, man, if I'm who God calls me to be in my neighborhood, well, oh, no, maybe people won't like me. Or this message seems crazy. Nobody would believe that. I'm not going to tell them. Or if I be the person God intends me to be at work, Maybe I'll lose my job. (laughs) Well, guess what? God decides when you live and die, and he also decides where you live, and he also decides where you work. And so Jesus is just saying to his disciples, yeah, you're afraid, but we don't sit around and calculate what we think is best. We do what God calls us to do. And this is one of the things that we're going to see here is that we don't always see or feel the goodness of God. We don't always see it. We don't always feel it. But it is always there. 
And that's what we're going to see in this story. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Why are you risking your life to shake this guy and say, get up? Let somebody else do that. And then Jesus in verse 14 told them plainly, plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. That you may believe, but let us go down to him. So Jesus is actually just saying, I'm really glad I wasn't there. But when you think about that, actually, uh, there's people who are brokenhearted. They are crushed. They are devastated. And Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there. But Jesus not being there brought emotional distress and devastation and brokenheartedness and feeling numb and feeling overwhelmed and questioning Jesus you love us and you let this happen. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I'm glad that they're going to go through this. He's not glad for that, but he's glad for the outcome of it. And see, that's the thing is some people, they answer the problem of evil by saying, well, God can't force people to do things. So there's evil people in the world, and they do stuff, and God didn't know it. Um, there's this thing called open theology where a person says, oh, man, you got raped. Well, God was not the author of that. He was as surprised as you that that happened. None of that is true. God is good. God is sovereign. God is in control. God allows evil. There is nothing that happens that is outside of God's ability and power. Nothing. doesn't mean God's ever responsible for evil. But this whole idea of God refuses to mess with anybody's free will. Really? People are sovereign and God would never interrupt their sovereignty? I don't think that's what drives the universe. God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. And yet God is not the author of evil. But God allows this broken-hearted situation to happen um, because it's going to be good for them. And that's what God, anytime God allows suffering in anybody's life, it's because it's good for us. We need it. So verse 16, so Thomas, you guys ever heard the name Thomas before? Doubting Thomas? Man, that guy gets such a bad rap. You know, after, after he dies, he's like, all the disciples come. They say, Jesus has risen from the dead. And Thomas is like, I ain't believing that. I'll believe that when I can stick my fingers in his hand and, and, and my hand in his side where he was stabbed. I'm not believing that again. The disciples were so crushed and devastated by what happened in this week. They had faith in Jesus. They trusted Jesus. And God allowed them to be utterly, personally devastated. Everything they thought was true was shattered before their eyes. And here we see Thomas's commitment to Jesus because Jesus is going to a place where he might get killed and they might be, get killed. And look what Thomas says. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. He's just like, Jesus is crazy. He is going down to this place where he's going to get killed. Let's go. We'll just, we're all going to die, but let's go with him. He's rallying them to stay with Jesus. And 
Sometimes the more you believe and the more you're disappointed, the more devastating it is. And that's actually what we see. But Jesus at the end of the story is going to put it all back together. It's going to be good for all of them. And these disciples will never doubt again. They're going to look and say, it was so hopeless. I was so sure that what God says wasn't true and that it wasn't right. And I doubted it and I didn't trust it and I didn't believe it. And then they're going to see that everything Jesus said was right and true. And in the rest of their ministry, when they suffered, when things didn't seem like it shouldn't be going this way, they just thought back to what Jesus took them through in this week. And it strengthened them to do what they did in the rest of their life. Look at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now let's talk for a second about powerful miracles. Lazarus is dead and he's in a tomb for four days. I did read what happens to a body and being dead for four days and out of compassion for you, I'm not going to describe it. But let me just say this, that when you die, uh, your body starts to rot. Like all things of, all kinds of bad things happen to people's bodies in four days. Lazarus is dead. Now, he is the third person that Jesus is going to raise from the dead. That's not the first time this happened. Um, in uh, Luke chapter 11, there's a funeral procession, and Jesus sees this widow, and, and his, his heart just goes out to her. He feels bad for her. Her son is dead. They're taking him, his body, to the place of burial. This has already happened with Lazarus, and he got put in the tomb, and he's been there for four days. And Jesus just touches this bed that this kid is on, and Jesus tells him to get up, raises him from the dead. Amazing miracle. Um, Jesus um, also uh, raises the daughter of Jairus. You know, this guy comes up to Jesus, and he's just like, Jesus, uh, my daughter's dead. And Jesus goes to his house, and he raises this girl from the dead before the funeral even starts. So we got a person raised from the dead before the funeral starts. We get a person raised from the dead at the funeral. And then we got a person raised from the dead who's been in the tomb for four days. Man, this is an undeniable, incredible, um, incredible thing. Look at verse 18. It goes on and it says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. This is how close it is. It's a little map that shows Bethany and Jerusalem. So all of this is happening right there. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, when you think about that, um, any of you guys ever face incredible tragedy, pain, sorrow? Like, I, I think about the times I've, I've faced that in many different times in my life. Uh, my dad, I love my dad, and as he was an older man, he was like in his 80s, and I knew he was going to die. I mean, it's like I used to tell my kids for years, we got to go see grandpa at Christmas. This may be his last Christmas. They started laughing at me. They're like, dad, you've been saying that for like six years. My brother-in-law was my dad's doctor, and he said, I don't have a single patient with as many things wrong with them as your dad has and that is still living. Like, my dad was, like, the sickest possible guy and just kept living. So we were ready. And uh, I remember being there, and 
my dad, you know, he had that death rattle and he's laying there and he's breathing and it's just like goes on for several days. And I actually wasn't sure if I would even be sad when my dad died. He had come to know the Lord. He was a Christian. He was going to be going to heaven. Um, this was like, I just thought, okay, I'm ready for it. I'm expecting it. I've been expecting it for a long time. I wasn't even sure if I'd be sad um, because I knew that he was going to be in heaven. And when my dad passed away, it was so emotionally overwhelming. Man, I just cried all the time. I'd wake up in the middle of the night crying. Every time I thought about my dad passing away, it was devastating. I was numb. And that's how that impacted me emotionally. And this is what Mary and Martha have just gone through. They lost their brother that they weren't expecting to die. Um, he was young. They were spending time with him. They loved him, and he died, and they were overwhelmed. And when Martha hears about Jesus, now Martha's the one who's working in the kitchen, and Mary's the one sitting at Jesus' feet. And so Martha's like that personality that gets things done and takes care of stuff and tells people what to do. Like that's her personality. And so she hears Jesus is coming, and she runs off to go talk to Jesus. And Mary stays at home. We don't know. Was she crushed? Was she devastated? Did she even know that Jesus was coming? I don't know. But she stays at home. And when Martha shows up, she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what we're going to find out, isn't that what Jesus said? <laughs> Jesus said, I'm glad I wasn't there so you could see this miracle. So Jesus says, if I was there, he would have died. And then Martha looks at him and said, Jesus, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And later, we're going to hear Mary say to Jesus, Jesus, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And what I love about that is these are people who love Jesus. They know who he is. They trust him. And they're taking their struggles to him. You know, one of the worst things that happens in church is when we pressure people to say that they believe things they don't believe. When we make the church a place that's not safe to just express what's on your heart. When you read something in the Bible and you're just like, I have a hard time believing this. What, should we just pressure people to say they believe stuff they don't believe? Or should we just let people tell the truth? Jesus, when I, or when I read this, I don't believe it. These are the things that make this hard for me. Like the church needs to be a place to struggle and to be honest and to tell the truth about the things that we're going through. And that is not bad. Religion is never based or built on things that aren't true. And it's not just pressuring people to say the right things. And one of the things I love about this is that Jesus is going to love them. He's going to minister to them. He's going to encourage and help. And so she's being real, and she's just saying how she feels. Let, let's read the rest of this conversation verse 22, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, he will give you. And then Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so Mary or Martha understands about this resurrection, that everybody that dies is going to be resurrected. Where, where could she have heard that? How would she know that? You know, the Bible talks about that in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2 verse 2 says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, 
some to everlasting life, and some to shame, everlasting, shame and everlasting contempt. Did you know everybody rises from the dead? Everybody. Some people rise from the dead and they go to heaven. Some people rise from the dead and they are separated from God, punished in the lake of fire forever. That's what it says here in Revelation 20:14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Like, do we live in light of that reality that there is a resurrection everyone's going to be a part of? And does that drive and motivate us? Or do we think, you know, <laughs> the most important thing today is that my neighbor smiles at me and is happy to see me. He's dead. He's dying. He's spiritually dead. He's going to be separated from God forever if he dies. Uh, people in my life who don't know the Lord, they have this utter devastation in their life, but I actually care more about, like, social, socially comfortable situations. That's what really drives and motivates me. I would rather go to church and fight with people over dumb things that don't matter than just solve the logistics and work on the things of eternal value. I'm not going to fight over, are we going to do this or this color or do this thing over here or that? No, those things don't matter. What matters is can we work together to bring people to honor and obey God in their life? Our brothers and sisters who show up every week to church and for the unbelievers that we need to be figuring out how to reach. See, Mary, and she understands that there's going to be this resurrection and that's actually the thing that should drive and motivate all of us this sense of spiritual urgency and so she says i i know about that and she's encouraged because she knows that her brother is not going to be resurrected to punishment he's going to be resurrected to peace and love and happiness with the lord that's where he's going and here's what we're going to find out that faith Faith is rooted in truly knowing Jesus. And there's two things about truly knowing Jesus. It is rational. There is information that you must know, that you must believe, and that you must accept. Salvation is rational. It, it is terrifying when a person grows up in church, and they've been going to church for 20 years, and you say to them something like, um, why should a person be a Christian? And they say, well, God gives you good ideas, gives you lots of wisdom for living. Man, we need, we need wisdom from God. And so then you say, okay, well, just hypothetically, what if I'm happy with everything I know about life? What if I feel like I'm wise, my life's good, I'm doing well, and I don't actually need any of God's advice? My life's good. And then you say, well, if that's true, you don't need anything from God, why should you be a Christian? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. When you talk to people about salvation and what it means to be a Christian, and they cannot verbalize, I am a sinner, I am under God's wrath, there is a destiny that it will either be heaven or hell, and apart from Jesus, I am headed for eternal destruction. If you can't verbalize that, if the people in our ministry and people that we're training, if our little kids, if you can grab a five or six-year-old out of Sunday school and you could say, why does a person need to be a Christian? And they can't tell you 
who Jesus is, that we're sinners, that Jesus died, and that because of his works and his righteousness, we're forgiven and can go to heaven. Just because you know that doesn't mean you're saved. But if you don't know that, you are not saved. Anybody who thinks they're going to heaven because they're, they've done good things is not going to heaven. Religions that teach that to people are ushering people into eternal destruction. If people don't know who Jesus is, who they're putting their faith in, who they are trusting, they're not going to heaven. So understanding Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus is intellectual. There are things in Scripture you must know and believe. And as a church, we are supposed to be reading those things to people and then encouraging them and praying for them that they will believe it. If you are a parent, who cares if your kids know how to tie their shoes? What matters is do your kids know who Jesus is? But we're so used to religion and church where we talk about how to, have, how to be happy and how to be a good employee and how to have a better marriage that often... We leave out the things that make the difference between whether or not somebody's going to heaven or hell. And so what we're going to see here is that a relationship with Jesus is intellectual. Jesus is actually going to ask Martha some specific questions, and she's going to answer them. We need to pay attention to her answers. But it is not just intellectual. There are lots of people who could take a theology test, and they could pass it. And when they die, they will be separated from God. It is not just about knowing the right things. It is relational. It is personal. And when you read this story about Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha, it is intellectual, but it is personal and it is relational. And they love Jesus and they know that Jesus loves them. And there has been a personal commitment uh, something has happened in their relationship. And so we're not just trying to get, hey, can we get a whole room full of kids or people and get them to say these words? Oh, good, then they're saved. Or are we trying to get people to enter a personal relationship with Jesus? And then are we looking to see what does that look like? Because the Bible actually describes how a person thinks and the kind of things that a person does when their heart has been regenerated. And that's what we're trying to know and encourage. Hey, let's look at John eleven twenty five. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says some facts about himself. And if you go through the book of John, Jesus has said a bunch of things, I am statements. When the disciples are in the boat in John chapter 4 and they're, a, they're scared, Jesus just says, I am. Do not be afraid. That does not come across in our English translations, but Jesus uses the same words here in Greek, I am, which is, by the way, you search on that phrase and it shows up in the Old Testament talking about God. That is God's name. God uses God's name for himself here. 
He says, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes will never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She recognizes that he's God, that he took on flesh, that he came into the world for a purpose. She read Isaiah 53 that was talking about Jesus saying, he will be pierced for our transgressions. You know, the whole thing of the gospel, sometimes people think it's only in the New Testament. No. Um, uh, Isaiah 7, 14, that God is Emmanuel. This Messiah would be Emmanuel, God with us. That he would be the son of David and that God would call him his son and that he came to bear the sins of the world. And those are the things Martha says. She believes that stuff. She knows that stuff. Um, if you said to a seventh grader, hey, show me salvation, but don't use the Old Testament. Show it to me in the Old Testament. Could they do it? They should be able to, especially if they grew, especially if they grew up in the church. Uh, what, what about you? Share the gospel. Show me salvation by grace through faith in the person of Jesus, and don't use the New Testament. Show it to me in the Old Testament. Could you do it? Because actually, there's not a piece of the gospel message that, it, that isn't in the Old Testament. Oh, in the Old Testament, we were saved by works and sacrifice. In the New Testament, we're saved by the blood of Jesus. Wrong. Read Isaiah 53. And Jesus asks her to make a personal decision. He asks her for a personal response. So honest struggling before Jesus, knowing who he is, um, is always met with God's loving care. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus has not yet come to the village, was still in the place where Mary and Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's actually faith in who Jesus is, that Jesus could have kept him alive. And then it goes on in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Now, this is interesting. Those words for deeply moved are actually only ever used for anger. Like, that doesn't seem to fit this context, right? And there's all kinds of things that people say about why Jesus may have been angry. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And here's the thing. Jesus is not mad at Mary and Martha and the questioning and the heartbreak and that. But Jesus is mad. It's interesting um, that it mentions that the Jews came. And it's interesting the times that it says Jesus was mad. See, when my dad died, uh, I was in grief hanging out with a bunch of people who um, loved us, a bunch of people coming. They didn't know what to say to us. I was so heartbroken. People didn't know what to say. And that you want to know something for me, it didn't matter. Um, people said stuff that was dumb. I didn't care because they loved us. They were just, I, it, just, it meant something to me that they were there and that they said anything. But there was one lady who showed up, and she said some things that made me mad, and I'm not going to repeat them. But I just thought to myself, I'm going to ignore that because I think I could explode 
by what that person just said. And it was a person with good intentions, but they just said the dumbest thing. Um, and I, I won't even get into what that was. <laughs> but I was so upset, and I just think about you can have be heartbroken and compassionate toward people and mad, and Jesus was mad at the Jews that were here. And then I'll show you that later in the passage. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. You know, Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus has lived life and he understands us. Hebrews 4.15, I won't read it, but I'll just put it on the screen. And here's where we're going to find out that belief is primarily an issue of the heart, not evidence. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead undeniable proof and people aren't going to believe you know sometimes we think (laughs) oh we shouldn't just present God's truth that if only I could figure out a smarter way to say this if only I could remove all the unbelievable things from the Bible I mean Jonah swallowed by a fish you know the flood worldwide flood God's creation I mean look at all these miracles the Bible talks about nobody would believe that stuff take all that stuff out And we think that by our wisdom, we could come up with something better that people might believe. And what we find out is actually evidence, proof, coming up with some smarter way to say it. It doesn't ever help anybody because belief is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of God working on the heart. The most powerful thing that you and I could ever do is to share the truth. Look at what it says here in verse 11, verse 37. But some of them, that phrase is used three times always of people rejecting Jesus. Twice in this passage, and it's used once in Luke. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus was deeply moved, angry again, and came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, who just said, I know even now you can ask God, he'll do whatever you want. Martha says, The sister of the dead man says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. He's rotting in there. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And then look at verse 45. This is powerful. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They see this miracle. It is evidence. It is undeniable proof. And they believe. I mean, that's true. Miracles are amazing. God uses evidence. Uh, God uses things. But what's going to happen next is quite amazing. But some of them, that's that same phrase again, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? (laughs) They didn't say anything about it being fake. Uh, they, he's performing many things. They go, hey, this guy's doing amazing miracles. What are we going to do? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Okay, wait a second. 
if it's so powerful that anybody who sees it will believe, why don't you believe? And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. You see, people are driven and motivated not by truth, but their desire for evil, their desire to rule their own life. It doesn't matter how much evidence you give someone that never forces anyone to be saved because people's hearts are so hard. In fact, Romans 1.18 says, God put a knowledge of himself in every person. Even if you didn't see the miracles, you know. Because God put it there. And what do people do? They suppress it. They call themselves wise and they become fools. You don't need a miracle. All you need is God's word. All you need is God's work in your heart. And if you are a person who suppresses truth, miracles don't help. And it says um, in verse 49... But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this is unbelievable about God's sovereignty. How is it that God is in control of everything and yet evil happens? How is it that when a car accident happens or some terrible thing happens that God's in that? How could that be? Okay, wait a second. Are people robots and they just do what God makes them do and they have no choice? Or do people make real choices and yet God is always at work? So here's what we see is that this guy who hates God, he's not a believer, but he's functioning as the high priest. And God says, I'm going to have this evil, wicked, hateful person give a prophecy and he's not even going to know it. And he's going to say this thing about how Jesus should die for the nation. Why did God send Jesus here? To die for the nation. And so God's going to use their evil, wicked rebellion to accomplish his purpose. Look what it says. He did not say this on his own accord, verse 51, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day forward, they made plans to put Jesus to death. That is going to happen on Friday. It is going to bring about the salvation of mankind. And then in Acts... When Peter preaches, he's going to say, by God's predetermined plan, Jesus would die on the cross at the hands of sinful men. Does that not give you confidence in life? That when something terrible happens, some evil person does something, that you can look at it and you can say it was bad. God is not the author of that. That person did that. And then take a step back and say, but God holds my life in his hands, and he intends good for this. So nothing devastates us as believers. Though we can look at it and say it's heartbreaking, it's terrible, but God is in it. And ultimately, it's amazing. The understanding of life comes back to what? What it means to be a Christian. How we understand our salvation informs everything about the way we live life. And it's so amazing how God's going to use this 
to bring about the salvation of mankind. And so my encouragement for us this morning, hey, that was 53 verses, and that was long. <laughs> you guys tired? <laughs> you guys got good ability to pay attention. Um, as you think about your life and your salvation, be thankful for who God is, what he did in Christ. Ask yourself, do I know Jesus? Recognize the power of God's word and the power of the gospel. And let's fulfill the purpose that God has given us here on earth. And let's know this. There is no heart too hard for God to soften. You talk to people, you've seen them, they've, they're hard-hearted, they've rebelled a thousand times. But God can still save them. But he saves them through the gospel, and he saves them through his word. Don't hide the gospel message in your life. Highlight it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your kindness. God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of every single person here to be a believer, to believe your word, to trust your word. We know that is a work of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for all the churches all over that are going to be preaching, that are going to be having visitors. Lord, I pray that you would work powerfully through those speakers, that they would preach your word. Lord, I ask that you would work in the hearts and lives of individuals in this church, that they would care about the salvation of the people around them. Lord, help us to pray for people. If we have opportunity, help us to invite them and minister to them and to encourage them. And God, I pray that you would bring people to know you in your name. Amen.